out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the indie band, just for a change. The Jack Rubies, yes, who formed in 1985 and released various, um, yes, albums on Criminal Damage Records and TVP Records. Um, this is an interview I did very recently with Ian Wright from the band, who was now based in New York. So after a few minutes of casual chat, as you do, um, we got down to the importance of John Peel. And uh, yes, the 80s, it wouldn't be the same without John Peel. So um, after mentioning that, which I have to say isn't the most exciting thing. This was Ian's response. After that, this is kind of conversation gold. <laughs> anyway, enjoy. Ian, tell us what you thought of John Peel. No, 100% for me was a John Peel show. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember John Peel pre-punk, just about. Um, but the whole experience of listening under the bedclothes, uh, after the lights are out, uh, when he was still playing things like <clears throat> uh, The Faces and mm. and then Faust and strange stuff like that. Um, right before he got, right before the, the, the punk revolution. And of course I was completely in the right place to uh, absorb all that. Yes. And reggae, and reggae. I mean, I'd never heard reggae until, well, I had. I mean, I'd heard Desmond Decker on top of the pops and... Um, Dave and Ansel Collins, that kind of thing. The pop, the pop reggae that was just starting to happen. But roots reggae and that whole gateway into world music through the John Peel show when I was, you know, 15, 16. Um, good times. Yes. Well, I, I yeah, it, it was because I'm, I think in the 70s, it was that there was a period of the Grateful Dead, Jackson Brown then the Ramones and the Dam, and it was like, kind of was a real, you know, for the fact, for those hardcore 60s, 70s fans, it was like, no, John, you can't, you can't start playing the Ramones and the Dam, you know, and it was a bit like, and he, I did read it, there was a good book, um, which I got recently called, I don't know, Good Night and Good Riddance, and it was talking about that period where he'd almost kind of was becoming kind of irrelevant, and then punk came, and it was like, right, I'm right there. I'm back on the game. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. relevant again. You know, up to then it would be like, well, music wasn't that great. But then it was just like, okay, this is, this is kind of relevant. And, and it was the 80s. It was like, you know, you mentioned reggae. I think it was, that's when I, I used to go and see Aswad and Misty Roots and, you know, sure. Sly and Robbie. They used to do these kind of events at the UEA, you know, the Taxi Gang. And, they, you know, there was Gregory Isaacs and Dennis Brown and Augustus Pablo. So, yeah, John Peel was like, before that, you might have had Bob Marley, but then that was it. Really. Right, right, yeah. <clears throat> so look, anyway, as you yeah. guess, I'm, I was born in the mid, probably guess, I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm in my mid-50s now. So, um, yeah, so I was kind of growing up in that world of Top of the Pops in the early 70s with like bands like The Sweet and obviously Gary Glitter and uh, mm -hmm. Slade and, and then luckily David Bowie was my first person. There was Alice Cooper. So what were your formative teen years? You know, those kind of years that you suddenly went, oh God, actually this is brilliant. I'm really excited by this and my parents hate it. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, all of that stuff. But the one that really um, completely struck a chord with me was Mark Bolan, T-Rex. Yeah. And, um, you know, little, almost like the, the, the John the Baptist before Bowie if you know what I mean. He was like, he just, he opened the door of glam rock, really. Um, I was, I wanted to be Mark Bolan when I was 11. I mean, I really did. Uh, I was absolutely obsessed. Um, but that led me to um, Bowie. And I, I'm sure anyone of our era is going to say Ziggy Stardust. But yes, of course, it was a hugely important uh, yeah. record. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was probably, I probably missed that, but I got the Space Oddity, which was reissued, re and that was luckily my first single. And it had a B-side, which has had changes in Velvet Goldmine, which... Oh, yeah, great song. You yeah. just thought, you know, side two, you know, the B-side is good. Obviously, it goes downhill from there. <laughs> well, that's what I loved about T-Rex. I don't know how familiar you are with their, their um, early glam singles, but... They always had two songs on the B side. They were usually, for any other band, they would have been the A side. At least one of those two tracks would have been uh, the as good, you know, great singles. Um, so always great value for money. And I just, in terms of that period where you change from being a boy to just starting to on the cusp of adolescence that weird period yeah. where you become aware of sexuality and oh there's a, there's a grown-up world it's just over there but it's something that i can almost touch but i can't quite touch it for me that was mark boland that that he was like there was something uh risque about him that i found fascinating and that led me into all the rest of glam rock from the, from there on it include and then you know in some ways david bowie took over from that but i always treasure uh the sort of electric warrior period of t-rex yes i know it was it was kind of amazing and, that, and obviously he was there with his um show called mark didn't he which he started to um yeah, sure that was a bit later but yes yeah indeed was, as he was slightly sort of looking a bit more chubby and not quite with it anymore. But anyway. Yeah, he, he was kind of a, that was like Mark Bolan in Vegas period. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually I never thought of that, but that sort of his Vegas period. But yeah, so then when do you, as we trucked into the 80s and, and indie pop started to become a thing, yeah. and to be honest, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths. That's kind of not yeah. a watertight theory, but there was definitely like there was a punk period, and then you had that post-punk world of the Gang of Four and and Wire and um, lots of sort of not scratchy, but you know there were bands that were a little bit kind of um, awkward, almost like Peel and bands like that. And then you you had sort of Echo and then Echo and the Bunny Men and Simple Minds, U2, and then kind of the Smiths came along. And that yeah. made quite a difference. And everyone I've ever spoke to, there's like three bands that a lot of people mention. They, Orange Juice, June Brides, and The Smiths, um, and the Go Betweens sometimes. So how how yeah. was the, how was the early '80s for you? Uh, I mean, it's funny you mentioned those bands. It's uh, I'm, I'm sorry if everybody says the same bands, but I guess they were all very important um, with different levels of success. I mean, the June Brides. Uh, were 
con almost contemporaries of ours, the early gigs, um, and we certainly see them around town a lot. Um, but those, you know, the the witty lyrics of Edwin Collins, Morrissey, uh, for sure, uh, made a big impact on me as a budding songwriter. I suddenly saw that you could be, it didn't all have to be about, um, you know, the, the usual suspects in terms of um, what you're writing about. You could have this arch kind of sly, very British um, sense of humor to the lyrics. And I, I loved all that. And that made a huge impact on me. Yes. Um, so, so that, that the, all of those bands, and actually including the go-betweens who I discovered later, really, um, but I, uh, I, I really love some of their music as well. Um, all, of, all of those bands were very important to me. Yes, I know. Well, actually, I, I was much more of a Triffids fan than the go-betweens, but um, it was kind of later on that I sort of, I suppose, discovered their records. So did you, because in the early 80s, you know, we'd had the sort of Falkland, and then there was the, the minor strike and Thatch, and there was a lot of unemployment. So there was, there's definitely yeah. people, people who got into a lot of bands were often unemployed. So they were doing the Job Seekers Alliance or Enterprise Alliance. But then there was yeah. the kind of the student years, which now people look back and can't believe because you've got a grant and housing benefit and sometimes you're sort of, um, yeah, you cancel tax paid. So which, what were you sort of up to in the kind of early formative 80s period? Uh, before the band formed? Yes. Um, well, I was, a, I was an art student. Um, and I went to Reading University. I was studying painting and filmmaking. I'm, when I was at Reading, I met Stephen Einstein, who was in the Jack Rubies. Um, and we were in a, a band together at college. Um, at that time, the kind of things we were interested in was bands like The Gang of Four and television. So more spiky kind of new wavy things, uh, not so much the, what well, it was pre, I guess Orange Juice were going there actually, but it was pre the, the whole Smiths period. Yeah. Um, um, so I was an art student. I went to art college because I was interested in art, but I was also determined, obsessed, I would say, to form a band or be in a band. And, um, and that had been a ambition of mine since I was a teenager. Um, I'll take it all the way back to Mark Bolan and T-Rex and Glamrock when I was 11, 12 years old. I, I, that inspired me to get a guitar and to write some very um, <clears throat> naive songs at that, you know, but I, I, that got the bug going for actually, I could, I, I want to write songs, I want to play the guitar, I want to do all those things. Anyway, so teenage years go past, see a lot of the punk bands, go to art college, and that's when I actually did get into a band with Steven Einson. The band was called Russian Drugs. Uh, we never released anything, but we, we played and we got a taste for being on stage and all the things that being in a band, um, all, that, all that kind of, uh, let's get ready for the show and all that kind of stuff. It, that, that, that all happened. Um, in 1983, I moved to London 
with this other guy I knew from Reading called Stephen Brockway, who became the bassist in the Jack Rubies. Um, and we, uh, found a drummer and the drummer's name was Peter Maxted. So there was the three of us, Stephen Brockway, myself and, and Peter Maxted. We didn't have a name. We didn't play any gigs. We, we just rehearsed and tried to figure out what we were trying to do. And sometime around that period, and I'm guessing by now we're into 84, 85, probably 85, I reconnected with Stephen Einson, who was also in London, and he was doing a project with, which included a percussion player, and this was Lawrence Gilt Lane. So I've named the five Jack Rubies, and we were all sharing the same rehearsal space, his project, my project, and we combined forces, and that became the Jack Rubies. That's basically how the band started. Because there was definitely, I mean, that was a, a great period for sort of that guitar pace, bass, slightly jingly jangly sound, wasn't it? That kind of, often talk about 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smith. So there was definitely a feeling that a lot of things were going on. And obviously Neil Taylor, I mean, you formed the band just before the, the famous NME cassette came out, C86, but the NME was, the NME was always um, putting those cassette compilations out, which I was always very excited by and buying them, even if it was country and western or jazz. But did, um, so because in, the, in that period, and something that I hadn't sort of appreciated so much and, until sort of looking back on it, was that you've got these gatekeepers, which were really interesting. You know, it was really important so that I think bands now, from what I can gather, but I'm an old person, so I'm completely out of the loop, but it's kind of difficult to sort of play in front of anybody else that you haven't personally blackmail to come and see you whereas then you know you you kind of you you know if you've got to play on the John Peel show and then possibly a John Peel session there's <coughs> likelihood there was all these venues around the country that you could just get a phone call and someone say could you come to Leicester or could you come to Brighton could you come to Norwich or Leeds and people would just get in the van and go and that kind of created that network and also you had the NME which had something like I don't know 100,000 copies printed and then you had the Melody Maker and Sounds and Record Mirror so that that kind of network was just so important for bands wasn't it because you gave you gave people that kind of incentive to to improve <clears throat> their work uh yeah and i think that we what you know we were literally steve brockway and i were living in a squatted house in stoke newington with no telephone and my office was the cool box at the end of the street and i would go down there with the big bag of 10p pieces and we would be hustling for gigs at places like um the sir george roby pub uh in islington and um gosh what were some of the other early gigs we did but you know little little gigs here there and everywhere we would we would hustle for them and um we would play to anybody and we would we would make friends with some of the other bands in the scene the time boxing in the Bull and Gate in Kentish Town, that was the other big one, the time box next door to the, what was then called the Town and Country Club. Um, and it was all bravado and, you know, we've got a record coming out. We haven't got a record coming out. We've got a record coming out next week. Uh, can we play 17th on the bill? We would do all this stuff. We would, we would kind of learn our trade and cut our teeth. And then when we did actually make a record, 
then we we weren't playing. I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously. We weren't playing 17th on the bill. We were we were now playing fifth on the bill or fourth on the bill. Um, but once there was some press, the enemy was very important in the melody maker and sounds. Once there was some interest from the music biz papers, um, that could translate very quickly especially if you've got airplay as well, if you're lucky enough to get John Peel playing a track, <clears throat> or Janice Long for that matter, um, um, that could translate very quickly into, yeah, you got the phone call. There's, you want to play in um, the pub in Leicester? Yeah, sure, you know. Princess Charlotte. Exactly. That's the one, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I always remember John Peel saying, you know, I hope they got this gig in... I can't remember the place in Leeds. It was an all the the Bradford one in twelve club. Or yeah, the the Prince. Yeah, the Prince Charles. There was a circuit. It was, yeah, a, there, was, circuit. It was a really indie circuit because I saw. You know, I look back at some of the bands I saw. That God, you know, I I must have just heard the one single. Oh, they're playing in Norwich for two pound. I'll go and see them. So, but your first single, Foolish Boy. Did that was that the kind of the first time you went into the studio and your first kind of recordings. No, no, that and actually that was not our first single. That was our third single. Um, the first thing we did was we basically it's a self-recorded six-track mini LP, um, and it was called Fascinating Vacation. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't. <laughs> that was a later record. You have to bear with me because these these events happened thirty years ago. Of yes, course. this is true. Um, we made it. We made a series of recordings which were not specifically for a record. We made four, we made a recording of four songs and we were giving out the tape to people left and right. And one of the indie record labels, which was called Criminal Damage, and they were based in Reading, picked it up and they really liked it. And they said, great, if you pay for two more songs, you have to go and pay for it yourself. We'll put it out as a six track mini LP. And that's what happened. Uh, so it was on this small label, Criminal Damage. The, uh, the record was called Witch Hunt in Lotus Land, which is another name of one of the songs. And that garnered um, qu quite a bit of press interest and some uh, after hours radio play. Um, you know, we didn't have a press agent or anything like that at, the, at this point, but suddenly we were in Time Out, we were in City Limits, whatever the other magazines were. We Every week there was, our gigs were now, there was now a picture of us, a small picture, tiny little picture, <laughs> there's now a picture of us and uh, playing at the Rock Garden or playing at Dingles or whatever it was. Um, from there, two very big things happened. One was we got picked up by a booking agency called uh, Concord, Concord Agency, um, which meant that they, rather than me going down to the phone box at the end of the street trying to hustle for gigs, now we were getting gigs uh, through the agency and not only playing Dingwalls or the George Roby or wherever it was, but you're also supporting, you get a phone call. Yeah, you're going on the road. It could often be with an incongruous band, like 
Katrina and the Waves. You're going on the road with Katrina and the Waves for four dates and you're playing fairly big theatres. So you would suddenly be playing in that kind of environment on a Monday and then on the Thursday you'd be back in playing in the pub again, you know, for the, for the <laughs> usual. And yeah. it, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. The other big thing that happened right about then was we signed a publishing deal to uh, what was then called Chapel Music, later became Warner Chapel Music. Um, so suddenly there was some real um, proper music business interest in the group, and that made a big difference. Then, because of the Warner Chapel uh, connection, we went on to make a total of four indie singles with their help. One of them was Foolish Boy. You're quite right that that was one of our singles. That was the third one. The first one was called Be With You. The second was called Lobster. The third was Foolish Boy. And the fourth was called Wrecker of Engines. And, and the, all those songs spaced over a couple of years were, um, you know, indie indie singles, make, making appearances in the indie charts. Yes, blimey. Because, you, yes, because I, I mean, one of the record labels you were on, TBT, I've never come across before. Well, that's okay. I was going to say that's kind of the next stage of what happened. Um, one second. I've got a slightly sore throat, so I keep drinking this lemon tea. Um, anyway, TBT was a New York based label, an independent label. But um, when I say, you know, not independent in the sense of somebody running a record label out of their house in um, wherever it was. Sarah Records in, in Bristol. <laughs> exactly, yeah. This was like um, a Manhattan-based record label um, that had, it was officially independent, but had plenty of connections with the music business at large. Their main, um, at that time anyway, their main discovery and sort of protege was Nine Inch Nails, which is completely different to what the Jack Rubies were doing, but nevertheless was extremely popular, industrial sort of hardcore uh, mm. band, um, extremely popular in America and generated a lot of attention for the label. TVT loved the Jack Rubies. And what they did was they said, can we have all of the indie singles that you've done and make them into an album? Uh, bar one or two tracks um we said yes of course you can um and there was a you know that we we were trying to we we'd got to the point where we'd made these four singles in the uk and we wanted to make an album and we couldn't get the funding from us you know from whatever whatever was going on we just couldn't get to that next stage let's we want to make an album that's what we want to do at that point, TVT came into the picture and gathered up all the singles and said, Let's, let us put this out and see how that does in America. Um, and it did um, quite well. And especially the, the, the very first single that I mentioned, Be With You, became quite a big college radio hit in the States. And the, the accompanying video for it was picked up by the 
still quite young MTV at that point um, and would be in rotation when they had their sort of indie shows. Um, this was in 1988 at this point. So 1987 was kind of our golden year in the UK where all those singles were coming out and that a lot of touring and a lot of um, press and all the rest of it. 88, um, we were obviously still in the UK, but 88 was when this American uh, part of the adventure began to happen. Blimey, that must have felt quite surreal going so quickly from, from sort of, yeah, the George Roby and that club scene to suddenly a major player like, you know, TVT, who, you know, Nine Inch Nails came to be this huge kind of like band, well, artist anyway. So yeah, that must have, did you, did, so how was, the, how was the dynamic within, you know, the Jack Rubies? Because obviously it's quite hard to uh, keep things like that together when you're quite young, not quite knowing how to navigate these kind of tricky waters. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly was. Um, um, we felt that we had kind of we were bumping our head against the wall because, as I said, we'd had a lot of um, positive press in England. We were living in England. Um, we we were touring in our own right, and we'd done some quite big tours, opening up for people like the Triffids, um, who you may before which was such a great time that Trivids tour um, and Stump we toured with Stump and um, slightly more uh, pop orientated we toured with the Blow Monkeys which was amazing because we ended up playing in places like Hammersmith Odeon uh, but we still felt that we'd come to a point where we couldn't go any we, we weren't we didn't seem to get be able to get from whatever rung of the ladder we were on to the next rung and there was some, within the band, some frustration about that. It's like, well, do we, it's been great so far, but do we carry on now? Uh, do we just go for another year playing the same venues again, trying to put out another single? <clears throat> and, you know, the music business was starting to change, uh, or music was starting to change in that period. There was the burgeoning, rave culture bubbling under at that point and it became you know a bigger um facet of what was going on in in 88 89 this american label tvt seemed to step in from nowhere at the point where we probably we might have split up at that point not not in in angst but just because hey guys it's been great but i'm not sure where we're going from here um so we were living in a strange world because we lived in London. We had actually a very popular album on the indie scene in America. We were becoming less noticed in the UK. Um, so it was a strange situation. Yes. Um, what happened next was that in 1989, which was a sort of the height of Manchester and the rave scene and all of that, which was nothing to do with what we were about. <clears throat> TVT came back to us and said, we want you to make another album of all new material. And we want you to go into the studio with um, a name producer, who, which ended up being Pat Collier, who was a member of the Vibrators. He 
produced, had produced before us the Wonder Stuffs album. Um, he'd done some stuff with the House of Love, uh, early Primal Scream, these kind of the creation bands, My Bloody Valentine, that kind of thing. And he recorded an album with us in 1989, <clears throat> which was officially our second album, but really our first album of all new material, um, never released in the UK. It was um, only, only released in, in the States. <clears throat> and then we, we went to America and we toured that album uh, for about a year after that. Yes, and this is the album, just to, to make sure, because if you see the money in my smile, or is it the one which is titled Fascinating Vacation? <clears throat> Fascinating Vacation is the collection of all the indie singles. That was yes. the first album in the States. <clears throat> and See the Money in My Smile is the, the second and final album, which was all new material. Yes. The Pancolio. And, and, and how did you, because with, um, it was interesting you mentioned that period because, because I noticed that with, um, yeah, because that, that, you know, that kind of thing about the, 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 the indie scene from 83 to 87, which, you know, were the years of the Smiths, but when they split up, they, the party felt like it had slightly finished. So a few bands came along after that, like the Sundays, and it almost felt a bit like, ooh, you just, you just, I mean, they, they became quite big, but there was something different and like ecstasy came along and there was definitely like the music press and everybody was like soup dragons, primal scream, happy Mondays. You know, it was definitely going to be that period. And then you had the pixies and it's like, okay, grunge next. So any of those guitar based bands were literally sort of not struggling, but they were, they, you know, like My Bloody Valentine did well, Carter, The Unstoppable, Sex Machine. Mm -hmm, did quite yeah. well. and there was bands like Lush as well. But, you know, it's definitely, it was definitely like, it, the. I mean, it's a very simplistic narrative that I've got, but, you know, there was definitely a bit of a problem for some of those bands that didn't fit in a, in that kind of cultural zeitgeist period that, you know, we like as, as kind of fans, and I suppose the music press like as well, because it makes it quite a simple narrative. And then, you know, you go, right, next thing, oh, it's Britpop, brilliant, you know, next thing, you know, whatever that is. So, yeah, yeah so I just wondered, you know, you must have felt that it was some uh, quite a strange time. Oh, that was what I was going to say, because most bands, they have a five-year narrative. They get together, they spend 12 months doing their thing. John Peel gives them a play, a John Peel session, first album, not bad. Second album, Tension in the Band. And most people say, then, you know, if they ever tour America, they always go, and then we came home and split up because it was just finished us off. So how did you cope with the American kind of experience? <laughs> well, we did split up after the American experience. <laughs> um, it was, you know, the, 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 the group had been, you see, when you talk about uh, different uh, zeitgeists and different um, groups of bands that fit into a certain pigeonhole, <clears throat> I'm not sure if the Jack Rubies ever really did. We were, through, through our whole um, story, we were never really a band. We were an indie band for sure, but we had... We didn't look like some of the other bands. We dress up more. I'm sorry, my throat's killing me. Um, <clears throat> um, we, we, uh, we, you know, we had a percussion player, which is a strange thing, which is because of my T-Rex kind of thing. 
Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I love the fact that there was the congas on the stage. I look at the stage sometimes before the gig, think it looks like T-Rex is going to come on. Great. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of, it was, it was, that was my ethos, you know, my, my whole thing. But um, uh, when we went to America, okay, okay, I'm running away, losing the question now. How was our American experience? Okay, yes. okay. So when we went to America, yeah, so there were two things happening. There was the rave culture thing in the UK, which was not happening in America, <clears throat> but grunge was just beginning to happen. Neither of those things, nothing really that would chime with us, unfortunately. So we were in a, a strange position, um, but the band had been kind of, obs not obsessed, but there was always an American element to what we were interested in. I don't mean American music specifically. We, some of the, the writing was about a kind of, uh, you know, the witch hunt in Lotus Land period and all the early stuff especially was about a kind of exploration of a weird America that didn't really exist from British people, English people looking at it from afar, not having not been there before the sort of seedy side of American culture, the David Lynch kind of aspect of it, you know, that whole thing. Um, so going to America was absolutely a fulfilling experience. It seemed to us like um, we're, we're actually gonna go and explore one of our areas of um, inspiration. <clears throat> we toured with They Might Be Giants. We did a nationwide tour with them which was actually an awful lot of fun. We did, um, we continued touring our own sort of club dates throughout America. Um, and then we toured again the whole country with uh, Modern English uh, for AD band. And that whole chunk of time was about um, five or six months touring continually living in a different country, um, living on the road. Um, and I think by the end of it, we were sort of like wild animals. It was we're very, very strange. We were not uh, wild with each other. We were just almost like, like gypsies. It was extremely strange state of affairs. Uh, none of us felt very grounded. And the record, that we were promoting uh, was not doing as well. And that um, was the uh, deciding factor in the band calling it a day. Yes. Was it, was it accommodate? was it the band or was it the, the label that said that this isn't happening or did you, was it just a combination of everything? It was a combination. I mean, the, we, the band didn't split up. We, we didn't have a meeting and go, we're stuck because it's not working out. We, we wanted to continue, but the support was ebbing away um, and the infrastructure was starting to deteriorate. Um, the TVT were not going to fund any more touring or another record. Um, <clears throat> So there was a period of like, you know, detente or whatever. There was a period where 
no one really knew what was happening because uh, there were there were contractual ob obligations with both them and with Warner Chapel Music the publishers, and eventually it just started to fizzle away, and that's what happened. Yes. So did you did you have have one of those moments where you sort of sat down to say this is it, or did did everyone just not turn up to a um, a meeting? Well, I guess again. I've got to think back a long time to get the exact facts, but I think the way it worked out was, you know, we, we, as, I, as I was saying, we, we were touring in America. We, we, we didn't live in America. We didn't have homes in America or anything like that. Um, so we were living in, in hotels or staying with people and, all, and that kind of thing. Um, at the end, at, at a certain point, Everybody in the band went back to England except me. Um, I wanted to still be on the spot with TBT Records and see if we could figure this thing out, what, what happens next. So things were kind of in hiatus. Stephen Einson, who was the uh, other guitarist and songwriter with me, um, after about two months, he wrote a letter to each member of the band saying that he was leaving. Um, so that sort of came out of left field. And we didn't split up then. The rest, the remainder, the remaining members of the band did not at that point split up. I came back to the UK and we continued to record demos both with actually pat collier helped us out again he was he, he let us do some recording with him and um <clears throat> the warner chapels funded some more demos tvt was like not answering our calls and uh steve einson was starting to, to begin another project on his own neither of those projects really came to anything the sort of second version of the Jack Rubies and, and his other project. And at some point in 1991, at this point, where we got to, um, everyone kind of said, okay, that's it. But it was very, it was not, it was uh, never at, um, angst ridden in the way that there was any falling out with the members of the band. We were, we were all sad that it had come to an end, but we were still felt very close to each other. Yes. And is that what makes this record called the Vons tapes? Is that the, the material for your, that last particular album, which was on TVT? The Vons tapes is what we thought our first LP proper would be. It was a recording, it was a series of recordings we made in England um, before we'd officially signed to TVT. When we, so we, they, they put out the first American record, which was the collection of the singles. We, we started to record what we hoped would be the, at least the, the, the main part of a, a, a real album of new material. It was rejected by TVT, and that's when we did the Pat Collier album. But it was recorded by us, uh, you know, we, it was a, a recording made by us that was kind of on ice for 30 years. 
And as the members of the bands communicated over the years, we all said to each other, you know, we really like that. That Vonst, the, the, it wasn't called the Vonst tapes when we made it. It was just, you know, that was the name of the studio. We, everyone likes the Vonst material. It sounds more like the band did at that time. And although we're all proud to see the money in my smile, it has got a, um, a big 80s production on it um, and is more locked in time with the basic sound of the record. I think the Vons tapes really does sound like how we thought the band sounded. And so we, I don't, I don't know how it all happened, but we rediscovered a copy of the master, you know, the masters of, the, of that record. Or we found a digital copy of it um, in somebody's archive in the band. And we put it out last year. Yes, well, I saw it, and it's on Spotify as well, which is kind of fantastic because the it, it is on Spotify, and also um, just fairly recently, about a month ago in May, we because we have the rights to the first record, which on in Lotus Land, the the six track mini LP, the, the very first thing we did, <clears throat> we put that out on Spotify and um, iTunes as well, so you can find that there as well. Yes, which is all very handy. I guess the material for your TVT is just never going to see the light of day. Well, you know, it's, that's a good point. We're not sure. We're actually in, well, we're not in, in discussion as such, but we are trying to re-release that material. Um, because TVT, the TVT sold their, they went out of business. They sold their whole back catalogue to another record company but we'd already been dropped by tvt a decade before that happened so we're not even sure we're, we're trying to it's a long story but which we're, we're trying to find out if the rights to those two american albums actually belong to somebody or in fact they're ours to, they, they can be returned to us that's that's an ongoing uh, sort of mystery that we're looking into right now it sounds like Sherlock um, Holmes doesn't it really? it is a bit yeah it's a bit of a sleuthing going on I think but it's interesting have you had that experience I did slightly mention at the beginning where after a part you know like you have these kind of events and you you know you live them and then you move on and you obviously have done lots of other things and then 20 30 years later you sort of start thinking actually I'm kind of revisit it for various reasons think I really just want to archive this material and just I don't know, sort it out because no one else is going to do it. Has, was that sort of a motivation for the last couple of years with the band? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I Once the Jack Rubies ended in the early 90s, I did one or two musical other things and so did other people in the band. But by the mid-90s, I was like, uh, I, I wanted to kind of, put the, you know, close it. I was done. And... Um, I tried not to think about the Jack Rubies very much for the next 20 years. Um, uh, you know, there's other things to do in life. Uh, those were a very formative part, you know, years in my life. And in, so, in, some, in some regards have influenced much of the decisions and things I've done since. But you cannot live in the past. It was a fantastic ride. And um, I've done, been doing other things. However, about... I'm guessing in the last three or four years, you know, I've been carrying, I've been carting around from one place to another for 30 years. Um, 
several boxes of Jack Ruby's ephemera, whether it be tapes, uh, footage, photographs, press, whatever. I've got a lot of, you know, I, I suppose it is an archive. And I've, I've never really wanted to look at it very much until quite recently, the last few years. And that coincided with the, the five members of the band all uh, starting, you know, we've, we've been in touch throughout the whole period, but we've all started at this point in our lives to talk more about that time. Um, and so I think there has been a concerted effort to document it, archive it. And I would just like to have all of the stuff that we did out in the public, um, you know, available for who, whoever wants to hear it. Because it's, it's a history that we all took part in and in a, a greater, not just the band, but in that whole era of what happened at that time, um, the 86th generation, that whole, that whole thing. Yes. Which we, we were a part of. And, I, and it's like, it's, it's historically relevant. I mean, it's, um, uh, I, I'm fascinated by many of, not just, you know, I'm glad that we were part of it, but I also love a lot of the music and, and culture of that time. And so, yes, you know, a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> yes, that's what we we're trying to do. <laughs> well, it's I guess, you know, it's interesting because I've sort of gone back and started listening to it and not wanting to sort of relive my past, but just kind of curious as sort of picking through it and then sort of discovering things that I missed the first time and finding it quite interesting and then sort of realised, oh, God, actually lots of other people seem to be doing the same thing and then suddenly thought, oh, yeah, it's 25, 30 years. It's obviously a thing that we... We slowly, and it's probably to do with, you know, those boxes that you've kind of carted around. And one day, you know, after they sort of go, oh, well, oh God, I don't want to think about that. You know, I've got other things on. Yeah. And, then, and then one day you lift the lid and you think, oh, how interesting, you know. And obviously there's those videos you've got on YouTube as well, which obviously must um, bring back a lot of memories of seeing you sort of there dancing and gyrating. Well, they do. And... Um... It's, it's, I don't know what it is. It's, it's something in the air about that period. Seems to be, it just seems to be a lot of people interested in that period again right now. So, you know, great. I, I, I'm glad about that. Um, if, you, if you'd gone on YouTube six, seven years ago, you probably would find it very difficult to find anything about the Jack Rubies. If you yeah. go on YouTube now, there's like loads of stuff. If you go on Twitter now, there's loads of stuff. And it's, um, and not just us, many of our contemporary uh, bands of the time as well, same thing. Yeah. So, and your show, I mean, let's face it, it's all about the same stuff. So, it's about um, the indie world, yes. It's interesting <laughs> because I think Cherry Red Records, I mean, I just noticed that, you know, a couple of years ago, they bought out a seven CD, you know, box set for Manchester and then a five CD box set for Liverpool. And then they've done one on Sheffield and one on Scotland, mm -hmm. you know, other variations on sort of goth or alternative stuff. And then, um, yeah, and then they, they reissued the C86 as a triple CD, you know, 66, you know, compilation. Then yeah. they did... C87, 88, 89, 90, you can see where they're going with this, can't you? So they're just kind of going, all right, we've can hoover all these records and here's 66 tracks and here's some nice footnotes. And, you know, you think, oh, God, that's really handy because I used to have the flexi disc of that, but now they've got it on this compilation. And, you know, you listen to it and you think, God, I didn't ever listen to tools, tools that you can trust, but now, you know, here I am. And it's quite interesting stuff. Yeah, so it's, um, for some reason, there were, and I probably sound like a very old person here, but 
you know, reminiscing, but there was a lot of creativity during that period, which is quite fascinating. I suppose that's what I've found, you know, that that's kind of, you know, it's that thing with the John Peel, you know, Janice Long, possibly Kid Jensen, you know, the NME, but then all these venues all over the country that just organically allowed people to go and tour, you know, and suddenly you could go, God, I've got, you know, I'm going to all these places around the UK and it's, it's kind of makes it kind of exciting. And I think, you know, a lot of bands now just don't quite have that kind of Monday night at the Norwich Wild Club or something like that. It just doesn't exist, you know, because there isn't 200 slightly skinny kids with, you know, like, you know, pale complexions who are going to just turn up and watch a band because they've heard John Peel play it, you know. Yeah. Well, I also think, you know, we're probably around about the same age uh, and whenever and, and most of the people in the bands of that that we've been talking about are as well and so you look back at a point in your life when you and especially what point it was the 80s I mean which is a very grim strange period in in uh in British history uh for people of that age coming you know who were whatever they're you know 18 to early 20s that was a very strange time to be living through uh for all of us and again the creativity that comes from uncertainty and uh the the grimness of the of the whole situation of the thatcherite years um when you now look back on that and it was in another century and then this is another weird thing i always think like god it was in another century it's it's so so long ago but um in some ways it isn't um and i think all of us it's not so much nostalgia it's it's remembering who you were when the whole of life was still before you and how how can i be how can i use this in the most uh creative way and yeah. that's what a lot of people did yes absolutely i know i know i do remember you just nearly lastly but i do remember we did moan a lot because being from the slightly left of centre or the far left of centre, we we sat around and then I looked back and God and thought, you know, you got grants for going to, you know, get a degree, you know, you, mm -hmm. you know, um, enterprise allowance and job seekers allowance and, you know, all these great, you know, these kind of quite amazing schemes that, you know, made it quite comfortable to live, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and you think, God, we didn't really take it, you know, we were all still feeling so yeah impoverished but now you know it's like you leave university or college with a horrendous debt then you know you just went no you know we just got it all for free you know it's like it's true you know this is that's true yeah yes i know we <laughs> and i know my, when my brother just let us leave he went to university and i mean he could get housing benefit and sign on in the holiday yeah. period you know and he couldn't even be bothered to sign on in easter all the summer because or christmas because it's like well I could do, but I don't really care. But look, lastly, though, what would you say yeah. to an 18 year old, you know, self, if you could have said something to yourself back in those early mm. days, I just wondered what you would have sort of whispered to them just to say, look, I've got some advice for you. You might ignore it, but here it is. Um, I think I would say 
treasure every, you know, if you get on the ride that you're getting, you're getting onto, bearing in mind that from when I was about 14, 15, I was kind of obsessed by the idea of being a pop star. <laughs> um, I would say treasure every moment of the ride because it's not going to go on forever. When it's over, it's over. And that's not to say that I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it. But uh, I, I wish I'd had a, been able to have a microscope and just kind of like every strange and wacky and wonderful situation I found myself in in that five to six year period, um, which I would never have been able to do if I hadn't been in a band that was able to travel and make records and do all those things. I would say to myself, just take it all in. Remember everything about it. Just drink it in. Yeah, and I try to do that, but I think I could have done it even more. Yes, I know. It definitely beats interrailing, doesn't it? Five years in a band, <laughs> you know. You know what I mean? Because it is quite. I mean, five years it is quite a serious amount of time. Plus, three years at college or university. You know. You, you yeah, know, yeah. It does kind of shape the person, and and you know you can't that experience of America. Most of us go for a week or two, but to go and actually see every city in that context must be you know all those cities or towns must be fantastic you know it, yeah i mean and it's shaped the person i am today um because it's extraordinary uh i used to say to people at the time and i think it's it's true now is that we never felt you know they say well that must have been great you saw all these places in america uh or, or actually england come to that because we toured all over england continually in scotland and the rest of it but but especially in America, it was like, well, it was like, it, was, it wasn't like being a tourist, but it wasn't like you really knew the place either because you would go to somewhere for 36 hours, maybe maximum, 24 to 36 hours, you'd be in a certain place. The, the road crew would know the places to go. They would know this is where, this is the best place to go and get dinner. This is the best place to go after the gigs. So you get kind of a weird, aliens landed on the planet for one day kind of version of what that place was some of those places i've been back to since for whatever reasons and uh um it's not the same <laughs> it's so to experience them uh as a visitor is different from from experiencing them as a member of a traveling circus um both are good but they're different I would imagine. Yeah, I know. But look, this has been in. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for this. And I like when I um do it, I'll I'll send you, you know, I'll podcast it and then I'll send you a link and you can always put it on your page, you know, because you've got Jack Rudy. Yeah, that's great. And then um yeah. And do you um sorry, go ahead. I know no, that's it actually. That was all I had to say. Oh, I was going to say, um, do you? What's the sort of da the the lag time between when you do the interviews and then you actually do a broadcast? Well, normally quite quickly, actually, because. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I don't sort of. I try and sort of keep on top of these things, but um, yeah, so it's good, you know. So um, it's it's been getting it's it's you know it's funny. I've my, my one of my. <laughs> main fans at the moment is alan mcgee which is bizarre he's sort of oh he's, yeah 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 he's, he sure. seems to be obsessed with listening to them which i thought why me well i've listened to a few because i you know how it came down was like we see the message from you on the jack ruby's facebook page and i, I go who's this guy <laughs> and i see that I go, I go 
I see that one of you, one of your friends, or, or Steve Brockway, the bass player, who actually lives in New York also. Um, he's, I see that you're, he's friended your friends on Facebook. So I say, who's this guy? And I also see that you're friends with Mike Barnes, who I know as well, the journalist. So I, I say to Steve, I call him up and I say, who's this guy? And uh, he tells me all about it. And he says, yeah, he does this great radio show. So I, I listened to it and I looked through some of the old shows. And there's a really great selection there of stuff. And, I, and you know, many people have crossed my path or crossed our paths in the, when we were in the band. So I listened uh, to a couple. I listened to the one with um, Stephen Bird, uh, Jowhead. Oh, um, yes. Because we, you know, we, we lived in, the band started in Stoke Newington and he was, also in Stoke Newington. And it, he was like the kind of the, the godfather of the music scene in that little bit of London at that time. So I knew him very well back in the day. Um, and what was the other one I listened to? Oh yeah, John Parrish. John, John Parrish I used to know at one time because he was on the same label as us um, uh, in the Warner Chapel period. But um, uh, I think it's a great cross section of really quite, you know, um, well-known artists and also um, people who are, who are, you know, maybe you've forgotten about, but they were part of the scene and um, it's great. I love it. I think it's, I'm going to try and work, work my way through some more of them. <laughs> well, there was a, there was a scene because there were, you know, because I'm really curious on things because there was the, in, in probably that area called the, the ambulance station, which yeah. was a squat and uh, yeah. there was a, there was a, band who was kind of part of that scene called the hangman's beautiful daughters mm -hmm. and they only brought out various random you know um 12 inch and flexi discs and that has just been and they all worked with dan tracy who was the other kind of, yeah. kind of legend in that area and there's a little label called optic nerve record based in uh, preston who started really reissuing and releasing all this stuff so Yes, and and I and there's kind of there's a few. There's one called Cloudbury, which is based in New York, who do the most obscure indie stuff from that period. Fire Station Records in Berlin or Germany, and then Optic Nerve, which is also in Preston. So there, there's these kind of guys who decided to to um, and that guy Jow Head did the notes for this one called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. Okay, yeah, and um, and she know one of the members lives in Las Vegas who I've mm -hmm. become vaguely friendly with. But it's interesting that, you know, this this was the first plet the first venue that Jesus and the Mary Chain played, um, I think either in London or in the country or something. So it's become slightly famous, the ambulance station. Well, as a matter of fact, it was where well, we did our first ever gig, the ambulance station in London, or actually ever. Um, and it was a gig that, Jow Head's band, one of his bands was called The Palookas, and they were the main band and we were the support band, and that was at the ambulance station. That was our earliest, it may not have been the first one, but it was a very, very early performance, and that would have been in 1985. Yeah. So yeah, I know the play, I know, I know what you're talking about. I know, because well, a lot of the Australian and, and New Zealand bands, they all sort of, most of them, <clears throat> you know, left, you know, their hometown and came to squatted in, in, uh, in London and they all seem yeah. to stay in, stay in basically the same street. So, uh, yeah, you know, very it true. Was, so it was quite, it was quite an interesting period, the squat, squatting world. Well, there was two, I mean, we, we were part of, there were two big squat centres. One was around that ambulance station, Vauxhall Grove, 
sort of Stockwell area. And then the other one, well, the one that we were involved with was in Hackney in the Stoke Newington Dalston area, where a lot of there were a lot of artists and bands and writers who were signing on and or doing an enterprise allowance scheme. And they, you know, basically, the as you as mentioned before, the kind of irony was in the Thatcher years, uh, somehow, ironically, there were these government programs and loopholes that enabled artists to survive, which is, <laughs> which is kind of like, if they'd known about it, perhaps they wouldn't have done it, but it's, <laughs> it, it actually enabled a lot of people like me to do what I wanted to do um, in my early 20s. Yes, I know. It's good. It's good. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much again, Ian. And um, this has been good. Now I have to work out how to do Skype. End. Okay, look. One last, one last, one last question. Um, yes. Do you um, do you need any music? Um, because the two the two American albums are out of print, but I can also send you uh, files of any of that material if you want me to. Oh yeah, actually that would be really handy if you got an MP3 of anything because I can. Um, yeah, I can do that because um, you know the first record Witch Hunt in Lotus Land is is available as is the Vons tapes which sort of bookend the careers. One, one's a retrospective compilation and one is the very first thing we did. The two bigger records, uh, yeah, um, as I say, we're trying to figure out how to get those out, but I can certainly get you MP3s of one or two key tracks if you would like. Yeah, because that, that's interesting, that story you had about Nine Inch Nails, because I remember there was, I watched one of those documentaries, which I love, about mm. Dr. Dre and is it called Jimmy Iovine? Iovine? Yeah, I saw that myself, yeah. And he was obsessed with Nine Inch Nails and just was talking about being on the phone to this guy who owned Nine Inch Nails like day and night, you know, even when- Well, he that, the guy they're talking about is, um, it was basically our label boss, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, not gonna I'm not gonna comment on that, but, um, but yeah. Many, all I will say is that many acts on TBT uh, left with a bit of a sore feeling. Yes, well, it was kind of when you mentioned Nine Inch Nails, it's like, ah, okay, that, that story of Jimmy, you know, Hassler and this mm -hmm. guy. Yes, so there you go. You must have, like, sat up when you mentioned that. I went, fuck, that's that's. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly did, yeah. <laughs> I've got a story here. Pause it, I'll tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's funny, isn't it, really? It all comes around. It's an amazing story. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much, Ian. And I'll, keep, I'll send you my email. Is that okay? Yeah, please do. And I'll send you some files. And um, yeah, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the interest. And, um, you know, good luck with the show. Yes, well, it's been, it's good. Anyway, look, take care and have a great day. I'm all right, take care. See you, bye. All right, bye-bye. I know, we saw very casual stuff here. It's showbiz. It's so not. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Ian Wright from the Jack Groobies for giving me the time for that interview. Uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It is C86 Show. And also, they've all been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Don't forget the last one. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.